Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, those film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, uh, songwriters, singers as a matter of fact we're going to have a singer coming a singer slash director back with us in a couple weeks um you name it we talk to them all and we've been doing a lot of talking as you know i wasn't here last week because i was screening films uh last monday three films and then a fourth one at night in order to do interviews the next morning so you got to hear my uh interviews last week with director scott waugh uh, my dear, dear Scotty Waugh, uh, talking Expendables 4, as well as Robert Rodriguez talking the new Spy Kids Armageddon. I hope you guys have checked out both films. If you haven't, please do it. Expendables 4 is in theaters, and Spy Kids Armageddon is on Netflix right now. Both are fun. Tons of fun. As I've repeatedly said about Expendables 4, it's Rock them, shock them, blow them all to hell. It is explosive. And I, I just, I love it. And I love seeing old guys still taking names and kicking butt. Um, so check them out, people. You won't be disappointed. And you're not going to be disappointed with our guests we've got coming up today, one of whom is on hold right now. Today is all about education. Yes, indeed. We're going to be talking with Andy Palmer here in a minute, director of The Re-Education of Molly Singer. It is a light, sweet, charming comedy uh, starring one of my favorites, Britt Robertson. And he's all grown up now, people. All you Marvel fans are going to know this guy automatically. He played Harley in Iron Man 3. Uh, and has been a presence at every Marvel premiere, uh, every Avengers film. Uh, Ty Simpkins co-stars in the re-education of Molly Singer. So I can't wait to talk to Andy. And then later on in the show, we've got director Tracy Droz Tragos joining us about her new documentary, Plan C, all about the abortion pill controversy. And the underground network, or maybe quasi-underground network, of dispensing pills to states that have outlawed abortion. So, that should be an interesting conversation. It's an interesting film. Interesting documentary. But first, let's start off with some educating fun. And welcome, Andy Palmer. Hey, Andy. Hello. Hello yourself. How are you? I am doing great. How are you doing? I am so excited to have you joining the show today. I can't tell you. Well, I'm so excited to be here. It's it's Monday. It's a, it's a beautiful cloudy day here in Portland. We, we hardly get any of those, you know? <laughs> sure. I know all about that Portland weather. You, usually, usually it's desert-like heat conditions here. <laughs> But, you know, we're kicking off October, a new month. We are. 
you know, the last quarter of the year. And what, a, and what a way to start it off. Then with the re-education of Molly Singer. This is well, so much. This movie is so much fun, Andy. Uh, uh, thank you so much. I am utterly charmed by it. It's light comedy. It's sweet. It's funny. And I just, I just think it is absolutely charming. Absolutely charming. Um, Thank you so much. I'm so glad you dug it. Yeah, we, we loved making it, and I got to see it the this weekend for the first time with an audience. I actually went oh. to uh, Peoria, Illinois, uh, <laughs> with 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 Zach Shear, who played Stu. His hometown uh, press got wind of it, and they rolled out the red carpet, oh. and we had like 200 people in the theater watching it on Friday night, and Zach and his whole family, I mean, it was awesome. Well, you know, this film, it covers multiple generations. It's a trip down memory lane for some people. It's a cringeworthy trip for others. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, your cast is great. you got Britt Robertson, and I will see Britt in anything. I mean, Me too. most people, they know her best possibly for Tomorrowland, The Space Between Us, The Longest Ride, or even... A, an absolutely wonderful drama, Mr. Church, uh, yep. in which he co-starred with Eddie Murphy. Uh, then we've She's, got... Uh, so versatile. I, I know. And she has this great presence about her. I've interviewed her, done one-on-ones with her uh, for The Longest Ride and for Tomorrowland. And she is just fabulous. And she is whip-smart, too. Yes. Yes. Well, that was where I first, like... Um, like I first saw her was I I'd seen her in some TV stuff, but at Tomorrowland, I just remember being like, Oh my gosh, this woman is just like, she is going toe to toe with George Clooney. Yep. And, and, and she is, you know, on, on an acting level beating him in these scenes. I yep. mean, it was just like, I just thought she was a star. Yes. And so she was one of the first people we sent the script to, but I, I think the second human we sent the script to when we, uh, <laughs> Uh, we're going out to folks. But, you know, on top of, of Brit, you've got Wendy Malick shows up, who is, of course, you know, she's only in a couple scenes, but she's hilarious, as always, as only yep. Wendy Malick can be. Making an appearance for all you little cinephile trivia, trivia nerds out there, Jonathan Lipnicki. That's right. That's yes. right. We have a great Lipnicki cameo. Yes, you uh, do. In the movie, and he was awesome. Yes, he was. And, of course, Jamie Presley can do no wrong. Um, and she's fabulous. Nico Santos just steals the show, every scene he's in. But the real standout, everybody knows him. Uh, all the Marvel fans know him as Harley, appeared in Iron Man 3, and uh, he became a fixture. I was telling uh, my engineer, Pam, he became a fixture on all the Marvel uh, film red carpets for premieres. And then he appeared again in Avengers Endgame. Ty Simpkins yep. is now all grown up. Um, yeah. you've all, you also know him from Jurassic World, uh, the whole reboot of the Jurassic franchise uh, as the younger brother. And then, of course, for all the horror fans out there, he's done Insidious Chapter 2, Insidious The Last Key, Insidious The Red Door. And now he plays a college freshman. I feel yes. really, I feel really old, Andy. I'm, dude, I'm telling you, right? You're just like 
that 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 person is this person. Okay, wow. Well, when did that when did that happen? And then did we insidious come out yesterday. Uh, I mean, you know, it's crazy. And right? then we see John. I see Jonathan Lipnicki pop up in his cameo, and yep. I'm like, okay, now just shoot me, just shoot me. <laughs> you know, for, folks, if you haven't, Jerry Maguire, he's the kid who knows that a human head weighs eight pounds. That's right. That's right. I think there's even an outtake. There's an outtake that may exist. I don't know where when uh, when when Stu's character pops the the, the mascot helmet off of Lipnicky, he goes, man, this thing weighs like 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> but just the cast is just wonderful and put together so well. They mesh so well. Briefly, tell tell the listeners what the crux, what the story is that we that we get to watch unfold here with the re-education of Molly Singer. Absolutely. Well, Molly is a uh, young attorney who uh, feels like the best years of her life were spent in college, uh, partying and being carefree. Uh, so she tries to recreate that every night after work. And uh, the night before her biggest case, uh, of her career she recreates it a little too much and she ends up sleeping through her alarm thus missing the court appearance and almost getting fired but in a twist of fate that only celluloid can deliver uh <laughs> her boss's son ends up going to the same college that molly went to and he becomes the campus pariah on the first day by injuring the star football player so uh brenda tasks molly with going undercover back at her alma mater to watch over her son and kind of take him from campus zero to hero and of course helping molly who is of course played by Britt robertson is molly's best friend ollie that's right that's uh, right who is played by nico santos who uh, he just makes me laugh he no matter what hysterical yeah i mean he had a small part in guardians of the galaxy 3 as yep. a recorder feel um, he's, of course, he was in Crazy Rich a- Asians. I loved him in Guardians of the Galaxy 3 just because of the looks he gets on his face. And we yep. see so much of that here in the life that he brings into Ollie. Um, yeah. But it, the premise is great. The premise is great. Written by Todd Freeman, who's also one of the producers on the film, and Kevin Haskin. How did yep. this land in your lap? Uh, so I was editing a film for Todd that he was another film he had written and produced uh, called Collection, and it was like a thrill. It was a thriller movie, uh, but we really hit it off during uh, post on that movie. We you know we worked together in the edit room a lot uh, with Mariana Polka, the director, and um, and so Todd had asked me. He knew that I had done film, and then one of the other producers, Warner Davis, is my producing partner. We've done almost everything together. And so Todd asked me one night, he's like, oh, what do you want to do next? And I had been doing a lot of like horror films and horror comedies and stuff. And I think he expected me to say like a horror film. And I said, no, I want to do like a, I want to do like a really fun, like throwback, like a weird science sort of type of 80s comedy. And he goes, oh, I, I have that movie. So, and then he sent me the script and, and it had actually been written years earlier. Uh, him and Kevin had written it years earlier and it was called The Reeducation of David Singer. So it was male driven, um, you know, the premise was exactly the same, but it felt very sort of 90s American pie. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was like, you know, we've never seen like a female Van Wilder, that sort of queen of the campus. 
And I was like, let's flip this and make it a female. Let's just see what that dynamic does and see if that changes relationships between her and Elliot. And, and we kind of, the, the, the best friend was sort of more of the stiffler best friend. And I was like, what if he's more of like the snarky, funny, like this sort of like ride or die that every girl would want to have her best friend be. And then I was like, it's like a Nico Santos type. And then it ended up, cause I love Nico Santos's relationship and I can't remember her name, but the woman that he works kind of closest with on Superstore. Um, I just, I thought they were so funny together and, um, yeah. And that's how it, it sort of snowballed. And, uh, and they were, I was lucky enough to be able to be put on board. Wow. Well, as I'm watching the film, I kept thinking this had so many great elements of a film like Never Been Kissed with Drew Barrymore, Van Wilder, of course, and a film that just came out last year or the year before, within the past uh, 24 months, Butter. Um, Yeah. I, I saw pieces from each of those coming together here especially with the themes that this film tackles. Because while it's light comedy and it is so sweet and charming and fun, there's a lot happening here uh, emotionally and themes talking about bullying and friendship. And, of course, finding yourself, finding your own identity, who you are. Um. And can you even do that in college, or does it take a few more years out in the world? So you really, and you bring it all together so beautifully, and you keep the film light and bright, visually and tonally. And this is where I have to commend you and your cinematographer, uh, Philippe Vandewal, who you've worked with before. Uh, I have, yeah. So uh, talk to me about... Your discussions with Philippe and coming up with the visual grammar and the visual tonal bandwidth that really carries this, you know, buoys this film and makes it shine. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that because, yeah, and Philippe is, you know, he's one of my best friends and, uh, and we work so well together. But that, that is exactly what we wanted to, to come off. I, I, you know, I, I, I wanted, we were tackling a lot of, like, you know, sort of, you know, sort of deep themes and stuff like that. But yeah. I wanted to keep this like a really fun, poppy throwback, um, you know, sort of comedy. One of, you know, one of my favorites from the, from like, I think late nineties, early two thousands was 10 things I hate about you. Mm-hmm. I just, I love the palette of that movie. I love the look of it. I love the style of it. Uh, so, um, so, I, you know, we borrowed from, from elements there and, and Philippe and I really sort of, you know, beyond, we wanted to create, you know, really kind of fun visual ins and outs of scenes. Uh, we had some like hero scenes that have a lot of style with like the Goose Castle on and stuff. But in in filming the the comedy scenes, I was like, we need to really strip down, make the cover, you know, make like the coverage minimal so that the actors have a ton of room to play, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can get as many takes as we can. Because in any, any indie movie, we just you don't have that many days to shoot right. these movies. So it's like, all right, we need to get make sure the actors have reps. Um, so that was sort of the style that we laid down and really the, the unsung hero I look at, uh, because, because it's just not something that I immediately think of was our costume designer, uh, Tor F because in my mind, I went to college in the nineties. So like everything, when I was like picturing the movie was in that sort of lens. Right. And Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, it was like, everybody was wearing American Eagle and cargo shorts were, you know, as far as the eye could see. And, and Tora was like, no, we need to make this much more colorful, and the first time she showed me everyone's costumes, I was like, I don't know about this. And then you see it against the 
the backdrop of the campus mm-hmm. and the way that all of her costumes popped. And I was like, you are a genius. Like it just, the, the first day of filming was the, the scene of Molly and Polly walking on campus and, and the way their, their outfits just popped against the, the, that sort of college backdrop, the purple yeah. and Polly and his like, in his like cool bluey green outfit. And so I was like, Oh my God, you're the best. So that was, uh, that was something that, you know, Tora had come up with that really like supplemented the style that, that Philippe and I came up with. And it was a great collaboration. Well, and then you have to take a look, you, you carry that idea of the color uh, and the contrast with the campus itself, because the campus itself, it's very collegiate. It's what you think yeah. of when you think of uh, like, oh, an animal house for yeah. a prime yeah. example. It's the all-American college, and here are the little frat houses, here are the nice brick buildings, very old yep. school, very warm and inviting. Um, but then you get into something like the off-campus apartment that Molly yeah. and Polly have. And that is, it's got neon, it's got richness to it, it's got more 21st century designer furnishings in there. And yep. the color is much richer. You go, you saturate that room, uh, and it really it pops. But that carries through from the costuming that has already been established. And I yeah. like that follow through there from the visual yeah, from it, the visual it, it, it aspect. It feels like the ultimate sort of sanctuary, like the ultimate yeah. fun sanctuary. It's just like it's warm, it's inviting. It's like if you were to like if Molly was a building. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's fun, it's functional, <laughs> and a little bit ridiculous. And that was this, like, old converted firehouse in the middle of Marietta, Georgia, that was just, like, it was crazy. I mean, even all the way down to that secret compartment at the end of the movie, uh-huh. not something that we built. That existed <gasps> in that house. Oh, my God. That, that literally existed in the house. Oh, that that is so cool. Yeah. That is so cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But now you've got some great set pieces, quote unquote, action set set pieces happening here. Um, starting, of course, you have the tequila sunrise in the third act party. But yeah. when things really start, when Molly's plan uh to kind of, to help Elliot, Ty Simpkins' character of Elliot, um, really starts is with the booze cathalon. And uh-huh. this is where not only is it shot really well and the performances are hilarious, but this is where your editor, where Tim Rush, is yeah. crucial. That is one of the best sequences I have seen. Fun sequences. I have yeah. seen in a while. Talk to me about the whole design of that. And, okay, did Todd and Kevin actually have all the drinking games laid out in the script? So, no. So, actually, the <laughs> Booze Cathalon is, is, is a creature of my own design. So, there Uh-oh. was a – I think that in the original script, they had had something very similar. I think it was like a – it was like a big fo- – it was like a huge, like, campus football game, I think was, like, the original – and, and, and I was like, and just knowing like where we were budgetarily and stuff like that, that like yeah. getting tons of extras, 
shooting a giant football game and stuff like that. Like I didn't think visually it was ever going to live up to what if we had if this was a giant studio movie we could have done. So I was like, we need to be able to compartmentalize this, make it smaller, but still so exciting. So I took sort of the thematic elements of the football game. And then I took the Nerd Olympics from Revenge of the Nerds, and then I just condensed it into, like, the stupid drinking games that I played in college. King's Cup being my – that was my personal favorite. So we started with that one. And then we just sort of – everybody got around the table and was like, what did you like to play? And we like – you know, and so we sort of went uh, and and did that. But that was – and then it was sort of my baby. I wrote the first draft, and it was 32 pages. And they were like, are you insane? Kevin and Todd were like – are you nuts? This is going to be a third of the movie now. And I was like, no, 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 I'll cut it down. And so we sort of proceeded to cut it down more and more. Um, but then, uh, then Tim got a hold of it and Tim and I go way back. We've, you know, I came up as an editor. I still edit to this day. Uh, and, um, and Tim and I work on a lot of shows together and we both do a lot of unscripted shows. And, th- and that's really where like unscripted reality editors come into play because he took that thing that we shot all the interiors of Booth Cathlon in one night. It was oh. insane. And he chopped it up, cheated, stole, speed ramped everything to just make that feel like it was that we shot that over the course of a week. And it, 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 that one, when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is this movie's going to play. This is so fun. And then you throw in the fun play by play from the sports announcer. And oh. I, I just think that thing is just too fun. That voiceover. You know, doing the sports announcing, like this is the Super Bowl, yeah. was just yeah. hilarious. Yeah. And then you have yeah. the visual effects. You've got the graphics over each each segment of the Booze Cathalon. Yeah. Just absolutely hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah. Now, you've got, you talk about a cast and you couldn't have pulled off a, a big all-school football team. But you're still dealing with a ton of people, yeah. especially with the Booze Cathlon crammed into that apartment. Yeah. And that was supposed to be, again, like another pivot. That actually, the Booze Cathlon was supposed to take place outside in the backyard. The The firehouse had this beautiful, like, sort of two-tiered backyard. Ooh. And my production design team and everything had, like, set up this, um, just, just the backyard looked amazing. And then the day before we were supposed to shoot it, my AD came to me and he was like, hey, man, thunderstorms all day tomorrow. So figure it out. <laughs> I was like, awesome. And so we actually had to shift and do everything inside. And so I really credit that AD department and everyone for being able to, like, really work with the background and, and organize them in a way that, like, I could focus on uh, working with the actors and kind of pivoting the, the shots to the inside while they're arranging and trying to make, you know, 40 or 50 people feel like 100 people in the background, and I, I think they did a really nice job with it. Trust me, watching it, it felt like 100 people in the background. Great. Good. Yay. Um, <laughs> you know, thank, I, you long, thank you, Long Lenses and Cracker Jack AD crew. <laughs> you know, I'm watching this, and, you know, I have a good idea of how big the room is and yeah. how much space is taken up for our <clears throat> our our mat, our table, a table yeah, of conflict, exactly. and then how you how many people you can fit around that, and I'm like, I don't believe they fit all these people in, and then yeah. for Philip to still have he and his camera operators have enough room to navigate. Yeah, was that? I mean, that luckily whole thing, that room was huge, but yes, you are you you could not be more right. It was. It just gets so tiny when you put 
cameras, dollies, lights, actors, and background in there. It yeah. gets very small very quickly. But we, you know, we shot the whole thing to camera, and 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 Philippe is just he's a genius when it comes to working with two cameras at once. And he, because they pre-lit the whole place, we weren't actually dealing with moving tons of lights around oh. within the set because they were all like already up, kind of mounted in the ceiling. They were coming through the windows. Uh, and then like, and then these cameras are so, they're so much more sensitive. You can use a lot more practical lights sure. and stuff like that. And so in that regard, you really were just moving dolly tracks and background around. That was sort of the biggest obstacle, but you weren't moving tons of like silks and, and, and lights and mm -hmm. all these sort of things around. So that was really nice. And of course the main focus of the light, the main lighting was over the table and the combatants anyway. Yeah, so exactly. if you were mm -hmm. going to if you're going to hang a light, a spot or something anywhere, that's where it's going to be. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So and let everything else kind of just fade off uh, into the periphery. But yeah. it, I just love how that entire sequence was shot, cut and the energy of it is amazing, Andy. Oh, really so amazing. It yeah, we, I it was like. It was just something in my head. I was like, oh, we got to we got to pull this off. And, and I'm so glad because it's such a it's such a catapult for which actually is like my favorite scene, which is Elliot and, and which is just so, so intimate. It's just two people, Elliot and Lindsay, the first time they kiss. And like, um, yeah. you, know, you talk about like things like never been kissed and stuff. I'm a I'm a saucy. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, you know, to have something with that much energy segue into like what I think is really the sweetest scene in the whole movie. Uh, it needed to, it needed to have that energy. It is so adorable, so adorable. But now, I want to talk to you more about the editing process of this comedy. is very tough to cut anyway. Um, yeah. Now, you with your extensive editing background, and I do mean extensive editing background. You know, as you're shooting, as you're directing, does your editing eye come into play to help minimize the number? Uh, the amount of coverage you need, things like that, because all of that then plays into you sitting down with Tim to cut yeah. the film. Yeah, you're 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 100 spot on. That's where I, I I'm I feel so blessed that I came up as an editor because it, it it allows for a level of relaxation on set. An indie movie is always a level of controlled chaos, and we were running into a lot of external problems in Atlanta because it was so it was kind of tail end of COVID, everything was opening back up and there were like 84 movies and shows going on in atlanta at the time it was just <laughs> busting at the seams and in that and for that we were having on our budget level having a really hard time securing locations or we would lose a location because somebody like you know came in and offered more or something like that and and that's where the editing comes in and and also that sort of shorthand with both tim and philippe where we keep a we keep a really relaxed set because I can go okay we can lose this and this I mean for instance like the all of the restaurant scenes at the beginning of the movie when we first meet uh, Trina Poles uh, and then and then later when when Poles and Stu are at the uh, uh, at the restaurant and then Jamie and and Molly are at the restaurant that wasn't a, that wasn't a day that was a half day of shooting <laughs> and it was like okay how do we make this feel like it's not like they're, we're not oh shooting in the exact same corner. What, can, you know, how much can I shoot? How do we time this out and stuff like that? And we shot that, like, we had to be out of there before they opened at, like, 2 o'clock. And it was just, <laughs> it was crazy. Um, but that's really exactly what, like, you're saying is, like, you're like, okay, what do we need? What do we don't need? I, we always say, what's our, what are our snacks and what are our meals? <laughs> so, that, that's about what so, it comes down to, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And and I lived with Tim down there. Tim came, flew out, and so I would come home at night. Uh, and the, at the condo we were staying at, and I was able to like see what everything we had done. I'm like, okay, well, if we're at this set tomorrow, we can go. We can steal this insert and stuff like that. That'll help us. You know, that'll help us bridge this. And that that was invaluable as well. It's it's crazy how quickly things go. You know, now that we're shooting digitally and stuff like that. I mean, now there's even technology where they call it like camera to cloud, where the camera is hooked up online to the edit system. Yep. So as the movie's being shot, those clips immediately show up on my in my on my editor's computer. And that is just bonkers. And I mean, that's perfect for low budget, no budget, micro budget totally. indie, indie yep. films. It's yep. perfect. You know, that that saves a lot of money that can be put elsewhere in a production. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Was it was it challenging to find the comedic beats in this film? Um, not it was in, in different in different places, and I you know the thing was is like we just cast so well. Like you know our casting director <laughs> Shannon McCain and Gabrielle Amargar are amazing, and if it was not somebody that I like, Brit, I was like I want Brit, uh, you know. But like Ty was somebody that Shannon knew, uh, and so she pitched tied to us and i was like i like Ty, but he just did the whale like why would he go from aronofsky to andy notsky like i'm like <laughs> i'm not the guy that you i am not the guy that you go from the whale to you know and and but he liked the script and he wanted to do something light after coming off something that was yeah. so heavy like the whale and so we got him and um you know that was probably the the biggest challenge on the comedic side was that ty had never done a comedy before and so he came in and he could tell like right off the bat that like and he's the one that has to deal with, he's overcoming this trauma. Mm-hmm. He's, he, everything is like happening to him in this movie. And so he was having trouble sort of reconciling, like, where, what's the tone? You know, what, where do I need to be? And I basically, I said to him, and this is what it clicked for him. I said, Ty, comedy drama is exasperation. It's that moment where everything is going so wrong. You just have to throw your hands up and laugh or you'll just die. And he goes, Oh, okay. And then, it was just like tick and he was off to the races. And then sitting with Brit and Nico every day, his evolution as a character of, of Elliot was almost this evolution of Ty as a comedian. Uh, because you, you really saw him get the pace and the beats of, of being a comedic actor. And, and, and by the end, he's just, he's just hysterical, you know? Oh, he is. Uh, it's just from beginning to end, this is so well done. Um, we have complete storylines for everyone. I like Molly's voiceover at the end to really give us an epilogue to complete everything. Um, really fabulous. And of course, everybody has to stay through the credits because you got a lot of fun stuff happening there. We could have, we could have done two rounds of those. (laughs) I'm telling you. It's incredible. But you know, before, because we're, we're almost out of time here, but. Talk to me about the music. You have such an eclectic blend of music happening here with, uh, with score and with needle drops. Yeah. What were you looking for from a music standpoint? I just wanted that. I, I kind of wanted that whole feeling of, of, of like female empowerment, but like in a whimsical way. Uh, I, one of the movies that really sticks out to me that had like an interesting soundtrack uh, of needle drops was the heat uh, mm-hmm. that Paul Feig directed with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy, mm-hmm. but he chose these like very very like sort of hardcore like female rap 
songs and yeah. stuff like that, which worked because it gave the edge, like the edge to the police, uh, you know, scenes in the movie. And I wanted to do something similar with that, but I wanted the sort of whimsy of, of college. And, um, and so Andrea Von Forrester was our music supervisor and she did like, you know, she did Ben Affleck's movie Air. She did Yellowstone. So she was amazing at finding really cool needle drop tracks. My wife actually picked out, I will say, the I Am Woman song at the very end of the movie. That was a, that my wife loved that song. And she was like, you have to put this in your movie somewhere. And I was like, all right, we'll try. And, that, <laughs> and it ended up being the perfect song at the end. But then from the score perspective, uh, I had heard this. Uh, we, you know, we had a lot of like composers get submitted and stuff like that. And Shirley uh, and Gina's uh, song Bogue, which is in the movie in the credits, mm-hmm. came up. And I just loved, like, I just love that sort of, like, synthy, bouncy sort of tone. And, and so I, I really like that. And, and bringing them on was so cool. They were both just amazing and, and brought, like, a really, I, I'd never heard a score like that on a comedy. I thought it was really cool. Well, from beginning to end, this is such a fun movie, Andy. And as I said, it's light comedy. This is not rocket science. This is not. No, definitely not. And it's not raucous balls to the wall kind of comedy either. There are a lot of raucous moments here, but it's all within the context of the thematics of the film. So uh, just job so well done. I am going to watch it again. And everybody can watch it right now. Because it came, it came out in theaters on Friday as well as on digital and on demand. Yeah, yep. You could you can load it up at, to your heart's desire right now. So uh, I hope I hope people do. I really hope people see it, and I hope they just I don't know. I hope they get a sense of like either they laugh for two hours or they go, you know what? It's not too late to figure out who the heck I am. And I think that's the that's the theme of the movie is it's just never too late to figure out who you are as a person. You know. Absolutely right. Oh, Andy, this has been so wonderful having you on the show. I hope you'll come back again. Thank you again. for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you'll come back again. Anytime. No, even if I don't have a movie, even if you're like, it's a slow Wednesday, what are you doing? I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep that in mind, Andy. All right. Oh, Andy, Perfect. thank you. You have a great rest thank of the you. day. You too. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Andy Palmer, The Re-Education of Molly Singer. It's fun, frothy, got a little bit of raucous humor in there. It's college. Come on. It's got to be there. Um, See it. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And Andy's wonderful. Now we're going to switch gears. We're going to get very, very serious here as as Tracy Droz Tragos joins us. Hi, Tracy. I'm, I, oh, I'm there here. you are. There you are. Oh, my goodness. We're having phone issues over here. <laughs> Damn, AT&T. <laughs> welcome, 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 Tracy. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you. I would have died if the connection had been lost. <laughs> This is, we just went from a fun movie about re-education, and now we've got Plan C, where you do a lot of educating in this documentary, let me tell you. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope I also, uh, okay. I lost you. Yep, there you are again, you keep going in and out. Oh no, I'm so sorry. That's okay, we'll do the best we can here. <laughs> Do you want to try dialing back in, Tracy? 
to the to the eight hundred number. Yeah. yeah, I'm 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 happy to do that. Let's try that uh, and see if, okay, if we get a, if we get a better line connection from the phone company. Okay, okay let's excellent. do that. We'll do this one more time. Okay. 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 Bye. All right, we're going to, Tracy's going to dial back in. Okay, we got her. Are you there? I'm here. <laughs> Much more better. Much more better. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad. All right, so this documentary, Plan C, um, you don't shy away from hot-button topics, do you? Well, I don't. <laughs> uh, Wow. I didn't know what to expect when I watched this documentary, and it is so packed with information uh, on an emotional level, a political level, a practical level. Um, you could have really extended this documentary out lo even longer. Yeah, it was hard to know when to put down the camera and... Uh, Stop filming because so much of the work is ongoing and things are only getting more dire in yeah. some parts of the country in, in banned areas. But I really felt like I wanted to share the story of this heroic group of people with audiences and also to let folks know that they had options no matter where they live in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think that really comes through because basically... Um, you know, for our listeners out there, Plan C, the documentary, is about what is now referred to as Plan C, abortion pills, and how people can get them, uh, where, you know, where you can get them, where you can't, the importance of online or mobile clinics, and how this whole network really has, has taken shape. In these precarious times of the limitations being imposed on Roe v. Wade. Um, and I know that there are a lot of women out there that need help, want help, uh, and don't know where to go. And they're not even sure what's available. And Plan C will tell you what is available. And I, I love that we get to meet the women, the doctors, the nurses, the volunteers that are part of this quasi-underground network um, following their conscience and their hearts um, with what they're doing. Um, it's, it, really, it really blew me away. Uh, one of the things mm -hmm. that, that I appreciate that you did, there you have a lot of women that are speaking that they didn't want their faces shown. Most, a lot of them, you know, they said the heck with it. Show our faces. Uh, because of the violence that we see erupting around the country on the issue of abortion. And just the violence in general, the escalation of it over the past number of years. Um, how did you even start this project? Well, I started it in 2018 when Kavanaugh was appointed to the Supreme Court. And I, I made a film a few years before where I'd been embedded in a clinic just over Missouri state lines in Illinois. Mm -hmm. 
and I saw how hard it was even before Roe fell for many folks across the country, especially in rural areas, to access the care that they needed. So when Kavanaugh was appointed, it looked like the writing was on the wall that Roe would fall. And I wanted to understand what were folks doing to prepare for that, what seemed inevitable uh, outcome. And here we are, you know, and I followed folks for four years leading up to uh, the Dobbs decision in June of 2022. Wow. Now, how did you go about finding all of your interview subjects, granted, you were embedded for your documentary abortion stories women tell. Uh, but, you know, was it difficult to get these women to speak or become involved in this documentary? Well, I think because I've made their, that film, there was some built-in trust. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to take a different approach with this film in that this was really... Uh, about these activists and organizers and providers. And it wasn't so much about changing hearts and minds uh, as it was about telling a story about what a grassroots movement did during this very precarious time. Um, you know, I saw it as my almost duty to share, you know, who stood up um, when folks were trying to, you know, restrict access and and take away people's human rights. Um, and I also wanted to quite simply share the fact that this was an option that was still available to people and is still available to people today. But to gain the trust, it was really that simple why. It was saying, this was my intention. I wanted to audiences to meet them in whatever level they were comfortable, you know, having audiences meet them. And some couldn't take the risk that others could take. Right. And it was really at everyone's kind of personal choice. Um, uh, yeah, how much they could share about who, their identity and where they live. You know, one of the great but things... But I wanted folks to meet them just the same. Well, and meeting right. everybody here <laughs> and meeting all of these women... What I really appreciate is that you don't just stick a bunch of talking heads up. Um, we actually get to learn something about these women. Uh, you know, Francine is a force of nature. <laughs> I am convinced of that. <laughs> Indeed she is. Francine, uh, Francine is a force of nature. But then we get other women speaking, and we, we hear from husbands uh, yeah. who are very supportive of their wives' involvement uh, in dispensing uh, Plan C and in this grassroots campaign uh, and movement. And I found that really interesting, and I think it's very empowering to the documentary. And I love the one, it's like, look, I cook dinner, I feed her, I'm a stay-at-home husband. I do the laundry. I make sure she drinks water and she's hydrated. And I, it's like, okay, how do you not love a guy like that? No, exactly. He, he's. A, I, I think there was one film festival where he got a um, he got a standing ovation when they heard that uh, he was in the audience. 
And I have to say, the dinner that he made that we see on camera, it looked pretty good. Yeah. It, I, I, uh, I, I do remember he fed us also. He was trying to feed the film team all the time. Oh, my so God. Bless his heart. Yeah. He's, people can support this movement, frankly, in all kinds of ways. And some of it is just keeping the people who are doing this work fed and hydrated. <laughs> It's just like being on a movie set. Craft services. Exactly. Craft services <laughs> everywhere. You feed you feed us and we will come. Um, now, you know, as you're, you're accumulating all this footage and politically and legally things are happening so fast while you're filming, at what point did you even get to think about your through line for this documentary? Well, I think the the through line emerged pretty quickly once the leak happened. Um, I think before then, it was still kind of unknown when um, I would put the camera down, frankly, because things continued to happen. Of course, when SBA happened in Texas, that was a real glimpse of what it would look like when and if Roe fell. But there was still this like hope among everybody that Roe wouldn't really fall. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't really going to go that far. But once the leak happened in May of 2022, no, it was March, I'm sorry, March of 2022, that was when um, everyone really understood that this was going to happen. This was a reality we were facing. And the work ramped up and the orders ramped up and the fear for, you know, from callers calling in saying, we need, you know, we, I need help and I don't know where to go. Can you help me ramped up? Um, and then of course, when Roe fell, um, you know, it was a reality that clinics closed their doors and, um, and sort of, you know, it, it all came to pass. So at that point, I knew I had to put down the camera and get this out. And so the shape of it just, you know, what was basically everything I'd been able to to cover up until this point. You know, how and I wanted to share it all with audiences. How invaluable was it working with Meredith Rachel Perry, your editor on this one and putting this together? Oh, well, the collaboration <laughs> in any documentary is huge. I mean, and for me, it's kind of my favorite part of it all. Um, I love working with the collaborators, both in the field, the people who are with me uh, filming behind the camera. But Meredith, um, you know, the relationship with the editor, uh, and particularly with Meredith was huge. Um, you know, Meredith is a mom of two young kids. I'm a mom of two kids that are older. You know, there was a lot of juggling in our own homes to finish this film. It it was independent, remains independent. So we were, you know, a scrappy crew and often working remotely with each other around our other commitments in our lives. Um, but we were able to get together, you know, right before the Sundance deadline for an intense period um, before we submitted to Sundance. And basically got the film into the shape it is in now with this intense no sleep two week period where we were together 
Um, yeah, and it was invaluable. How much footage did the two of you have to cull through? Because in addition to the footage you have um, embarking on this since 2018 uh, and speaking with all these different uh, women and getting, uh, you know, ambient shots, protest shots, you've got archival <laughs> news footage happening here, you've got you know, news reports coming from Capitol Hill with breaking news as things are happening, all of this you're juggling. So I'm curious, how much footage, how many hours of footage did you have to cull through to get down to 97 minutes or so? Yeah, we had uh, over 300 hours of footage. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I think, you know, the challenging part, I, I, I long to make a film about, like, one person over a weekend or something, but I never seem to uh, tackle something so <laughs> so specific and, and in a way it would seem so lovely and easy. Maybe that's what I'll do next. But sure we you also will. You know, traveled over 14 states to capture all of this footage. So, yeah, it was a bit of a sprawling endeavor, but I thought it was important to see what the landscape was while all these sure. folks were working and how the network was growing and how people were able to ship over state lines and the impact of, of that in the places that were banned and restricted in receiving, you know, the care from folks in another state. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a sprawling enterprise to try to figure out how to cover the story and, you know, I'm thankful that audiences are able to take away all that we hope they would take away in the end. It's, you know, it's an extremely powerful film, but it's also it's so insightful and educational as to the mechanics of how this is all, how all of this works. Um, and I think it helps to see them engaging online Um with actual women calling in or emailing in um, for assistance with questions. Um, yeah. be- because that is in lieu of going to their regular health care provider because they can't do that. Um, so the fact that there are alternatives yeah. and we get to actually see it in action, I think that's very important. So it's not just some publisher's clearinghouse mail order thing. Well, I hope that there would be some trust that audiences would have, yeah. even if they couldn't always see the full face of the medical provider on the other end of the line. They could understand that this was a real person. This was a trustworthy mm-hmm. person yeah. who cared and was doing this as a matter of conscience um, to, to do this work. And in fact, you know, the folks that are continuing to do this work, they are all, you know, licensed medical providers, and they're shipping FDA approved medication, you know, medication that's safe and effective, and approved by the FDA for over 20 years. It's just that in some states, where they send this medication, the, the, the states are trying to criminalize it. And so, you know, what is maybe safe medically is unsafe 
from a criminal perspective. Mm-hmm. Were Did you ever, while you were filming over the course of the four years, did you ever feel you were in danger because you were filming this? I did not. I think that question continues to be asked even with this film's release. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I'm aware that there are bad actors out there who would want to harm you know, people doing this work or people that are telling the story of people doing this work. Um, but I haven't felt any direct threat. I mean, for the most part, I was spending time in people's homes and we were, you know, around the country. Um, we weren't, they weren't advertising what they were doing. So it was very different from being like in an abortion clinic where there's a bunch of protesters directly outside. I was with people who, you know, were, were doing this work discreetly and safely and privately and in part doing it so that they could, you know, in that way, so that they could continue to do the work. So they're not, you know, they don't have a big sign out front saying I'm practicing telemedicine and I'm shipping abortion medication from this house because there'd be no point in that. Um, and I notice you also very discreetly and keenly, um, we're not seeing any, any landmarks, any identifiable landmarks uh, in your footage except for, I think, one or two moments on a freeway or something that there's a sign, um, an exit sign. But I really like that fact so that that in and of itself should give some degree of comfort, an additional degree of comfort to the documentary's uh, participants. Well, I certainly hope this film will not, you know, bring any harm to their work, only amplify and support it. And I did take great pains to make sure that locations were disguised and voices were disguised and we blurred what needed to be blurred. Mm -hmm. I mean, we also didn't hide the fact that we were blurring this because I think that was an important element of the story. Yeah. And that is something that Meredith and I talked a lot about together, Meredith, um, the editor on Plan C, because we, we felt like it was almost a character of sorts, you know, the, the stakes that these people were doing this work in, that we had to, you know, hide their faces and disguise their voices at times. So, uh, yeah, we weren't going to hide away from that fact. And you even have it one of the title cards in the opening of the documentary. You even yeah. reference that. So right away, anybody watching this is going to know going in um, exactly what they're going to see in that respect. So they don't suddenly go, oh, well, that's blurred out. Oh, well, they disguised the <laughs> voice. Um, no, you make it very clear that this is a personal choice of these individuals and they still want to participate, but they are concerned for their own safety. So it's a, you know, it's a fine line because we don't want to add to the shame and stigma that abortion access already has. 
Um, we didn't want to make this seem like a criminal enterprise because these are, you know, lovely people who walk their dogs and take their cookies out of the oven and have partners that love them and have children that they're caring for. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they have to do this work with some amount of secrecy in order to continue to do the work because of the political climate we live in. Yeah. And folks who would want to criminalize them. Yeah. You know, what would you say was the most challenging aspect of making this documentary? Other than the time crunch uh, <laughs> of all of a sudden in 2022, it's, oh, my God, I got to put the camera down. Um, what would you say was the most challenging aspect of making this documentary? I mean, it's hard to say that there was anything that, that wasn't a challenge, um, to be <laughs> to be honest. I mean, this was an independent film. And so, you know, not only was I trying to make it, I was trying to fundraise for it or, you know, get it on a traditional streaming network. And, and everyone was pretty afraid of it, despite the fact that it felt like a timely film. And for me, it was the most journalistic endeavor that I've ever taken on. But there were lots of sort of dark nights of the soul where I would say, you know, how can I keep going? You know, how can I put another plane ticket on my credit card and, you know, ramp up again? But but I was strengthened and inspired and encouraged by the people in the movement, by the people that were also doing this work in pretty, you know, hard circumstances, certainly much harder than mine. And so whenever I felt kind of like, oh, this is too hard, I would recommit in following their work and knowing how important it was. So it really became, you know, about elevating them and, you know, I should just deal with whatever, you know, filmmaking obstacles I had. Um, you know, and let the chips fall where they may. Well, now having said that, what do you think is the biggest thing that you learned as a filmmaker in making Plan C that you can take forward into your future projects now? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> that's a very, very good question. I mean, you know, one can't do it alone. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest lessons is as much as this film is about a network, this film took a network of individuals to see it through. And you don't have to wait for a big streamer to give you permission and, and to say, yes, I will green light you. I mean, it is, despite it being a, a hard time for creators and particularly independent filmmakers right now, um, there are still ways to get our films made. It's just very, very hard to do alone. So, you know, I'm, I am grateful for the collaborators. I'm grateful for the EPs that came on board and donated, you know, to our fiscal sponsors so that we would have the means for that, you know, last bunch of shooting or to finally finish the film when we got an invitation to Sundance. I'm, there would have been no way for me to ultimately 
finish the film um, without their support and collaboration. And it's, it's very similar to the way the network of these providers uh, formed. You know, they needed each other. There was strength in numbers. Wow. Wow. Now, one thing I'm curious, were you doing your own research and accumulating all, you know, archival news footage and all? Or did you at least have a researcher who was doing that for you? Well, we were kind of all doing it together. <laughs> <laughs> there was, you know, Meredith Perry, who is the editor, and she did a lot of her, a lot of research. I did some research. Sometimes people would actually send us materials. Um, we had an assistant editor who ended up doing a lot more work and was an associate producer on the project. Beth Kearsley, uh, she found material. Um, Molly Bourne, who uh, is a filmmaker in the South, she ended up finding some materials from lawmakers and state houses that, you know, was sort of very, very hard material to find that wasn't just up on the Internet. Mm-hmm. So it was, a you know, it came from a lot of different sources. Wow. I'm just glad you didn't have to do all of that yourself. No, exactly. (laughs) Filmmaking is very rarely a a one-woman show. Even when it's a documentary, especially when it's a documentary uh, with a subject matter such as this. Oh, so now how excited are you? The film is opening 20 markets, 20 markets on October 6th. (laughs) That's this Friday. Well, that is this Friday. I'm I'm very excited. I'm also must admit that there are certainly nerves, and you know we're still an independent endeavor. As much as we have the, you know the the wonderful good fortune that there are folks who believe in this film and believe in the message in the film who have booked the theater. You know we're we're an indie outfit trying to get the word out. So it's, um, you know, person to person, and I so much appreciate you having me on to help spread the word about it, because, you know, it's not like there's a giant studio that's doing all the, all those ads that people see. But, you know, so, you know, we're hoping that folks will show up and, you know, people will actually see it in those 20 theaters. Well, and the thing is, for a film like this, a documentary like this, typically you might be lucky to get a week in New York or LA or, or just one or two theaters, but you've got 20 markets for this documentary. That in itself is an achievement. Um, <laughs> in, the, in today's, in today's theatrical distribution, this is difficult. So that's an achievement. But then for anybody that can't get to theaters come November 14th, the film's going to be available on demand. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we we are hopeful that folks will come to theaters because there is a certain coming together with this film and yeah. what's possible with the with kind of people power. So we hope that, you know, folks might grab their friend and, you know, come and see it as a group uh, and talk about it afterwards and maybe even do some organizing afterwards. Uh, reach out to us. We have a lot of resources on our website about how to 
organize and do movement building around the country. And we've got stuff for college students, particularly. I'm, I'm excited to reach out to college communities, particularly, so that they know about the film and can, you know, do work with the film um, to know their rights and, and continue to fight for their rights. What's the best website people can go to for information on Plan C? Uh, PlanCmovie.com. Oh, that's We've got too- all the screening information and all those materials there. That's just too easy, Tracy. That is way too easy. <laughs> I got to tell you, PlanCmovie.com. Tracy, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today to talk about Plan C. Um, it is an extremely worthwhile uh- documentary. Um, and the fact that you managed to pull this off uh, and having to basically like grind to a halt and start up a different process in the filmmaking process, um, thanks to politics, um, it's a Herculean <laughs> effort on your part. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, thank you. There's there's a new there's a new village that's coming together to uh, help release it. So I'm grateful for our indie distributor, Level Thirty Three, who who booked it in all these theaters. They've been amazing. Andreas is phenomenal. I Level Thirty Three is an incredible distributor, and yeah, and actually, I can tell you that. He doesn't take films if he doesn't believe in them. I know how picky he is. So, uh, well, the, it makes a real difference. They're does. doing an amazing, amazing job. So oh. I'm grateful to them. Well, fingers crossed for opening weekend. Everyone can go see Plan C. Tracy, thank you so much. And I hope you'll come back on the show again with your next project. Uh, me too. Me too. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks, Tracy. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Tracy Droz Tragos, director of Plan C. It is in theaters this Friday. And Andy Palmer, re-education of Molly Singer. It is in theaters right now. Light, bright, fun, and fantastic. So, that is all the time we have today. Pam's happy now because I was eight minutes short on last week's show. So now I'm eight minutes over this week. So it balances out. So until next week, next week we have more live guests for you. Uh, and be on the lookout because Frank Meyer is going to be back with us in a couple of weeks. Talking about his new film on hip hop. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.